Hey, I love the sound of you being friendly. That's great. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. You can continue those great new conversations right after the service. My name is Pastor Dale. It's a privilege to be a part of the teaching team here with uh, Pastor Ryan. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 5. We're going to be looking at part of chapter 5, part of chapter 6 as we continue our series. There's always an outline provided to help you. This one will really help you this morning. Sometimes I want to give you a heads up that if you don't track with me in this thing, you're probably going to miss some of the some of the great lessons of Ezra, not of Dale, but of Ezra. It's about what he's teaching us. It is great to be back in town. A lot of you know that Becky and I made it back. We were here last Sunday, but very much jet-lagged. I am now almost on the right time zone. We were uh, about uh, almost two and a half weeks living in Tanzania, 10 time zones away. So we've been kind of, you know, as we try to wake up and figure what time of the day is it. But I do want to just invite you, one thing to note, take your Connect card. If you are interested in hearing our team give, a, give a, 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 an update with video and pictures and stories of what God is doing in Tanzania, uh, working with pastors and their spouses, next Sunday is the day. It's the luncheon. It's free. It's on me. It's going to be right in the cafe behind us here, right after church second service, about uh, 12, 15, 12, 20. So if you are interested in that, you have to RSVP today or call in this week. But the easy way to do is take a connect card right now, just write luncheon, Tanzania luncheon on it so we can plan to feed you and as our guest. So take that as an invitation to do that today and help us, help us plan well, okay? Let's pray. Let's pray together as we go to Ezra. Father God, thank you so much for the incredible uh, gift of your word and the wisdom of it. Thank you for what we've been learning from Matt and Ryan over the last few weeks about uh, your work, uh, God, in the midst of your people Israel and how that impacts our life as your children today. We pray today, Father, I just want to pray as we do every time we open your word that your spirit would speak and teach us. And Father, there's a lot of different issues that every person in this room is dealing with trying to figure out how to walk with Christ in today's world. And I, I just would ask that your spirit would apply your word uniquely to every life here. And I thank you that I've seen you do that over the years. We look forward to seeing what you do in our lives. Beginning with me, Father, uh, teach me from your word. In Christ's name, amen. You know, when it comes to life, at least, let me just speak for myself, When it comes to life, or my life, I like it a certain way. If I were to think of some adjectives that I like, uh, number one, I like it when life feels under control, especially if it's under my control. I've got a plan, I'm working my plan, God's cooperating. (laughs) You know, at least it feels good when life is under control. It feels good when life is stable. I don't really like instability. If I have a choice... Stable, unstable, I vote stable. I like it when there's a certain amount of security in my life. When I just kind of look ahead and I can, I can see, okay, I think things are relatively secure. I like security better than insecurity. Are you with me? Some of you, maybe some of you are just into insecurity, lack of stability. That's not how I'm wired. I like predictability where I think I kind of know what's coming. Surprises are great on birthdays, but apart from that, 
I really don't like to be surprised, especially in a negative sense in my life. So I like it when there is a plan. I've got goals. I'm not a status quo guy. I've never been comfortable with status quo in my life, uh, in my relationship with Christ, or especially as a pastor. So So I do like goals. I do like change in that sense, but yet I like it when I'm kind of setting the goals and I kind of know what's coming and I've got a plan and I'm working my plan and God seems to be in the midst of it working with me. That's what I like. But when I look back over life, even my own life, and especially the lives of those that I walk with for the last 38 years as a pastor, um, real life is seldom that way. Um, In the 62 years that I've clocked on planet Earth so far, um, my life is often defined by feeling sometimes out of control, unstable, insecure, unpredictable, and full of surprises. My plans almost always have to change. And sometimes I wonder in the midst of that, you know, God, where are you in this process? Uh, Are you there? Do you care? And sometimes as simple as, what's up? Why? Those are questions that most people, at some time in our lives, those really get asked. As I thought over my own life, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but I thought, what are some of the bigger ones in my life? And there's little ones almost every day, but some of the bigger ones, maybe at age 25, Becky and I, we're married, went through grad school, we had our graduation all planned. I was finishing grad school and now we were ready to start a family. And then for several years it was like, why can't you get pregnant? Do I have a problem? Do you have a problem? What's up? God, we kind of had a plan here. It's, it's the time. But it wasn't happening. It was a major challenge in terms of our marriage. A few years later, around age 38, we got, God had blessed us with three beautiful kids and we're pastoring a church up on the central coast of California and things are happening and everything seems to be following the plan. Church was growing. In fact, we were building a brand new gorgeous building and then I wake up after a record attendance on Easter, I wake up Monday morning and my speech is slurred and I think certain words and I can't say them. And after going to a neurologist and getting checked out, they determined two surprises. Number one, as I had a brain. <laughs> That's surpri- My wife labeled that a surprise, okay? But number two, uh, it wasn't normal. There was a big dark spot showing up. I said, well, what, what is that? And the neurologist looked at it and he said, well, it's one of two things. You either have an inoperable brain tumor or you've had a little stroke. You've had a stroke in that area. And we won't know for another 60 days when we do a follow-up MRI. He says, so what's this mean? He says, well, it's in an area of your brain that controls your speech. So probably the first thing you'll notice is the inability to speak. You know something? I kind of speak for a living. So we went through a long 60-day period of prayer and asking a lot of tough questions. God, why? Why now? What is this? What happens? 
I said, if it's inoperable as a brain tumor, what's the prognosis? He said, we've had pretty good success with some drugs that maybe would give you five years. And I'm age 38, and I'm doing the math, and I'm thinking, so by age 43, my wife is a widow, my kids have no dad. And how are they going to live? So things like this pop up. Surprises. And obviously, by God's grace, I'm still here, and I can still somewhat speak, 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 speak. Uh, and that was a bad joke. <laughs> I never use that joke when my wife is in the room. <laughs> but I'll use it on you. But yeah, God, by his grace, it was, a, it was actually a small stroke, which healed up with no lasting uh, consequences that we can tell. But that rattles your life. Age 57, we were pastoring a large church in Orange County and kind of in my dream ministry and having a blast, and, but we needed to make some changes and some plans, and I really felt with a lot of prayer and planning with the team that we had a great plan for moving into the future, and there were some changes in that plan, and, and I really felt like, yeah, I think we can do this, and the next 10 years we're dialed in here in Fullerton, and we'll stay here in Fullerton, and we'll probably retire here with all of our friends that we've built over 15 years of ministry, and everything was just sweet, and then all of a sudden there was opposition to the plan from some of my own staff and from some of my own elders, and there was disunity and, and friction, and, and all of a sudden our plans changed. And we concluded, you know, God, this must not be the plan. So we had a new plan. new plan was, let's help other churches and other pastors. And Seacoast calls me up. And next thing you know, we're looking at a, a one-year contract with Seacoast to do two things. Help them set some new vision and help them find a, a sharp young pastor to pastor their church. And then I'll move on. And, and um, five years later, almost six years later, I'm still here. But yet blessed by it and love being here and we found a really sharp new lead pastor it just took us five years to get him on board and uh, we thank God for Ryan and Sarah and for how God brought them here and and God is blessed through that I would not by any means want to be back in Fullerton love it down here but when you go through that Life is full of change. Life is full of surprises. And I guess as I kind of click some of those off, um, it leads me to this passage because this passage is all about a time when they thought they had again discovered God's plan and launched into it. And all of a sudden, new opposition arose. All of a sudden, a new problem came that threatened their plan to rebuild the temple. And in the midst of this story, here's what we're going to study. We're going to study how they responded this time to the opposition versus in the past. We're going to study the story and see some of the exciting things that was going on. But then what I really want to do this morning is talk about the significance behind the story. Why did God record these events? Not just for the Israelites to read, but why did he record them for Seacoast in 2016 to study this? And I think there's some lessons in it about the nature of life and the nature of God that we're going to discover. So what's the story, then what's the significance to us? That's where we're headed. So let's go to the story first. Love it. Love this story. Real quick, where have we been first? 
You've heard this before, but I just want to keep it in front of you. The people of Israel have been called by God for a mission. It's a global mission. It's not just a national vision. It's a global vision that God would raise up a people for himself through which he would reveal himself in a special way through his word, through his relationship with these people, the people of Israel, so that they might be a blessing to the world. That God would communicate truth about himself to the entire globe, every nation, every people, through this nation Israel. And they got off to a great start. God blessed them. They had their ups and downs. They become finally a nation in a land. They get a king. They have King David. They grow under King David, become powerful and wealthy. And then King Solomon, who follows David, his son, is even more powerful, more wealthy. And finally Solomon builds this temple as the, as the focus point for the worship of God and his presence. But then... There's a whole series of kings that come along after Solomon. And the key phrase was this. It says, and such and such king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Such and such king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they got off track. In fact, it was their prosperity and their power that really led them to pride. Those all three start with P. That's a total accident. Write that down. I need that next service. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but all three of them, okay, prosperity and power led to pride, which led to them moving away from God, which meant eventually it got so bad that God had to do something to help them get back to putting him in the center of their life. By the way, that's the title of our series, Ezra, God at the Center. Because when God was at the center with King David, they flourished. When God was at the center with various kings, they flourished. When God was removed from the center of their national life, their personal lives, they went away from God, got in trouble, began to sin, began to compromise, began to intermarry with people that worshiped false gods and all kinds of things that you'll hear about later in Ezra. So God finally had to discipline them. And you know what happened. God used a very evil guy named Nebuchadnezzar to come through as the Babylonian Empire took over that part of the world and he took control, he decimated and destroyed their temple and he led 70,000 of them into exile to make sure they would never rebuild their culture or their people. You take the 70,000 best and brightest and you take them away to teach them your culture in your country. And they did that. But God, through his prophets, had promised he was doing this for the purpose of helping them get God back in the center. And he says, 70 years from now, you're going to be back. 70 years from now, you'll rebuild your temple. And I'll reestablish myself in the center of your life. And that's the backdrop. Now what's happened? They've come back in the first five chapters. They've come back. They've started to build. And then we learned from Matt last week, great sermon, Matt, that there was a 20-year pause because for various reasons, and Matt unpacked really well. If you haven't heard it, go online and listen to last week's sermon. Kind of the, the surface issue is they stopped building. And instead they started building and improving their own homes and making sure everything at their place was nice and in order. But they quit working on the rebuilding of the temple that God had told them to do. And for 20 years, it set with the foundation laid, but not much more built. And the weeds grew up and things look in disrepair. And it's like driving past a vacant lot where somebody laid the foundation of a home and walked away 20 years ago. Can you picture what that looks like? 
You don't just have weeds, you got little trees sprouting probably, right? In the midst of what should be a building and, and it's ugly and it's in disrepair. And after 20 years, Matt showed us that the prophet Haggai showed up and confronted the people with their disobedience. And the good news is they went back to work. And their heart was recaptured by what God wanted them to do. And they started working to finish the project. Now it's that point in the story that we now pick it up. And in chapters 5 and 6, the story from the people's perspective is this. It's a story of determined obedience. It's back to work no matter what. They decide and they get serious. It's time for us to, re, to finish this temple. And they get back to work. And it even says in chapter 5, verse 1, it says that the prophet Haggai had confronted them and Zechariah and it says, so, so then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and, and Jeshua, Zozadok, I never can get his name, Zozadok, call him Josie for short, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Man, I love the fact that the, that the prophets don't just preach, they pick up a hammer, they pick up a chisel, and they help build. So you got the prophets and the leaders and the people united now to rebuild this thing. So now they're back on track, right? But then in verse 3, something happens. At that time, Tatanai, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and, and Shethar, Bozanai, I love that, and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple? And to finish this structure. Implication, what in the world are you guys doing? Has this been approved? We don't like this. Then we told them, according to the names of the men who were reconstructing this building. All it says in verse 4 is we even gave the names of, all right, here's our names. We're the ones doing the building. Now, in reality, they said more than that. In fact, if you jump down to verse 9... Um, their enemies that want them to stop write a letter to the king, the new king, the new big dog in the, in the empire is Darius, King Darius. King Cyrus, who told them they should go and build it, is now dead and gone. King Darius is the new guy in town, and he wasn't really around when Cyrus did that. So they write a letter to Cyrus. Now, part of the letter is they describe their dialogue with these Jews that are rebuilding the temple. So to, to understand the rest of what was said, you jump into the letter. So let me kind of advance you to verse 9. It says, Then when we asked those elders and said to them, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you and that they might write down the names of the men who were, who, were, uh, who were at the head of the project. And thus they answered us, saying, We are the servants of God, the God of heaven and earth. We are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which the great king of Israel built and finished. But because of our own fathers, our ancestors, who provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus uh, issued a decree that we 
to rebuild this house of God. And he goes on and gives some more details. But the thing I love about that little short snippet of the conversation is this is what they basically said, if I were to summarize it. They said, look, uh, we are fearlessly putting our trust in our God and, and, and we are going to rebuild this temple. Back up a few slides, John. It says, we were, they were fearless in putting their faith in God and not stopping when the new opposition arose. So they were fearless in faith and faithful obedience. That's the key thing. That's what you see that's different about them now. The opposition arises, some pretty, the powerful governors of surrounding provinces that were threatened by them, but also a threat to them. They showed up with all their power and said, what are you up to? We don't like it. Implication, you should stop. But this time, they showed faith in their God. And they, and they, and they exercised what I call faithful obedience. Look, we're the servants of God, and we're going to build. And it shows us that God is always watching over his people, and God is always working his plan. Because look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 now. It says, but... The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them. The, the opponents did not stop them until a report could come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. So it tells us that it, it was God overseeing them. God was watching what was going on. Now, they don't see God. They don't hear a voice from God. But what the story tells us is God is actually watching what's going on. And God supernaturally stops their opposition from shutting them down. But instead has them say, oh, okay, we'll let you keep building until, but we're going to write Darius and get his ruling on this. Because we don't think he's going to like this is the implication. So you see what's going on in verses 4 and 5 is God is watching. God is working in ways that they could never even see. All they knew was, uh-oh, here we go again. We just got started rebuilding, and all of a sudden there's a new problem, a new opposition that could shut us down in a heartbeat if they want to. They had the power to shut them down. But instead, God is watching, and God is making sure that that does not happen. God saw their faithful obedience and was watching over them. So they send this new letter to King Darius. Now, in the letter to King Darius, here's kind of my highlights, just to help you capture it. They said this this time. They said, look, we know who we are. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. He is the one that we answer to, not you, not even Darius. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. Secondly, we are rebuilding his temple. This is not about us. This is about him. Thirdly, our fathers caused this thing to be destroyed when they provoked God with their disobedience and they got disciplined and they got exiled. We don't want to repeat that mistake. Therefore, Here's a list of, here's our names. You give them to whoever you want to report to, but we're not stopping. That's the essence of what the conversation was. So there's a little courage happening here. There's a little resolve. That's why I say this story is a story of determined obedience when it wasn't easy. 
but they plowed forward anyway. Now, the story has a really cool ending. Um, they send the letter to Darius. I don't have time to read exactly all the details. You'll read it this week if you do our uh, daily encounters. Sign up. We'll email them to you. But they send their letter to Darius saying, so Darius, what is your ruling? This is what's going on. Here's the names of the guys who are doing this project. Um, you know, we know that, you know, why don't you search and see, are they telling the truth? Are they telling the truth? But then also, you're now the big dog. What do you think? They're, in their letter, there's those two questions. Are they telling the truth about King Cyrus and what he decreed? Because we haven't seen it. You've got to remember, you fast-forwarded now 20, 30 years. You're down at least 20 years later. And this, these are new players in town, new, 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 new power people. So the, the reality is, you know, what what's the truth? And, hey, Darius, do you agree? Because if you want us to shut them down, we'll shut them down. Now, Darius writes back, and here's what Darius says, and you can read it in verse 6 and following. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, and all the other, uh, and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, which is probably talking about the river Euphrates, by the way, but they were the, 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 these were other power players in the region that were threatened by the growth of the new rebirth of the nation of Israel. He says, leave this work on the house of God alone. Oh, first he says, keep away from them. <laughs> Verse 6. Keep away from them. Uh, stay away from there. In fact, we'll build the list. Leave their work alone. Leave them alone. Um, let the governor of the Jews and the elders rebuild this house of God on this site. Let them finish the project. And that basically was what Cyrus had decreed. But then look at verse 8. Moreover, I issue a decree. All right, so forget about Cyrus now. Cyrus told you these three things. Uh, you know something? From my research, as he researched Cyrus's decree, he probably researched the history of what God had been doing through the people of Israel, and, and, and who is this God of Israel? And he says this. He says, now, you guys should cover the cost. I love this. He says, moreover, I issue a decree, verse 8, concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah, rebuilding this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces, where? Beyond the river, and that without delay. So I expect you to raise the money to give them what they need to finish the project. You cover the cost. And then he says, and in fact, you should ship them a bunch of sacrificial animals so that they can do their sacrifices. And then he says, and you should ship them all the stuff that the priests need. They need uh, wheat and salt and wine and anointing oil as the priests of Jerusalem request it. It will be given to them daily without fail that they may offer their sacrifices to the God of heaven and we want them, by the way, to ask, please pray for the life of the king and his sons. So you cover the cost, you supply their sacrifices, you take care of their priests so that this true God is going to be worshipped. And by the way, remind them, please pray for me and my sons. This is an amazing declaration. I love the way it ends, though. And then he says, I issue this decree that any man, verse 11, who violates this. Maybe you think this is optional. Here was the violation. If anyone doesn't do this, 
then they, you sh- they, it says they should take a timber from their house and impale them on it. Don't just get any timber. I want take a timber from your house. I want to impale you on it and then desecrate and destroy your house. And may this God overthrow you. Little graphic. So guess what? Cat and I and all of his buddies jump in and said, therefore, with great haste, they did exactly what the guy said. <laughs> it's this or get impaled on a timber from your own house. What do you want? So what started out as a problem became an incredible blessing, and we learn in verse 13 to 18, they were supplied everything they needed, and they finished the building of the temple. They finished the building of the temple. Financed by their enemies. What do we learn? What's the significance of this in our lives? And I want to click off these quickly, but follow with me, okay? Number one, God is always the God of heaven and earth. Don't forget it. I love the fact that every time they referred to their God, they didn't say, well, you've got your gods, but we've got our God, and you know, our God is the God of Israel, and you've got the God of Babylon or the God of Assyria. No, no, no. They say, guess what? Our God is the God of heaven and earth. He's the true God. What they're saying is he is the one true God, and we're his servants. So we listen to him above all else. Number two. That this God is always watching over his people. I call this section, God is the always God. These are some things that are always true of God, no matter what's going on in our lives, for good or for bad. These are the things you can count on. He is always the God of heaven and earth, and he's always watching his people. It says the eye of the Lord was on them. They don't know it, they don't see it, they don't feel it, but it's it's an absolute truth. You know, Scripture says that God numbers the hair on our head, and for some of us, that's an exercise in subtraction daily, <laughs> okay? But God, is, God count, he knows us intimately, even though at times we wonder, is God watching? Yeah, he is, always. Number three, he is always true to his promises, always true to his promises. God's plans will never lack God's provision. Our plans may fall short, but God's plans will never lack God's provision for what he wants to get done. But he'll often fulfill those promises in ways that you would have never dreamed. I am sure that the leaders of Israel, in their wildest dreams, none of them were praying, Hey God, um, would you help us finish the temple? And by the way, would you help our enemies to pay for it? They didn't even ask for that. See, a lot of times we ask God for stuff. I, I've, I've really come to believe I need to be very careful saying, God, would you please do exactly this? Because God always has a bigger, better plan beyond even what I would ask for. Therefore, God always is true to his promises. Number five, God is never surprised, especially by opposition. And neither should we be. Jesus actually told us to expect opposition. Write down these verses. Look up 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18 this week. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Uh, it, it just tells us, look, the kingdom of God is not of this world, and this world will, will, will oppose it. 
So expect persecution, expect opposition, and, and, and expect life to not be easy as a follower of Jesus. It's never promised it'll be easy. God's not surprised, neither should we be. Number six, God is always turns trials into opportunities. What looked to them to be a tremendous problem was actually a hidden blessing. God took the fact that these jokers wanted to show up and shut down his project, and God just turned it and said, okay, guess what? You want to write a letter to Darius and remind him of what's going on? Be my guest. And then God took the contents of that letter and the research that it prompted Darius to do to awaken some level of faith in Darius, or at least respectful fear of the God of Israel. So much so that he would say what he said in his decree. Uh, yeah, they can finish it, and better yet, you pay for it, or I'm going to impale you on a timber from your own house. This has to get done, and please ask them to pray for me, because I want their God on my side. See, God if they had never opposed the project, Darius would have never done the research and they would have tried to finish it without the funds or the resources to even do it. So God, it's, it's, it's Romans 8.28, write the reference. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's a great illustration of that, isn't it? See, God, you know, they're just kind of trying to finish building and they're probably every day counting their pennies, wondering how they're going to pay for the next day. And God says, you know, I got you covered. God takes a trial and turns it to an opportunity. A friend of mine likes to say it this way, rough roads and dead ends and delays do not define God's will. Don't ever define whether you're in the will of God or not based on whether things go easy. I hear Christians do this all the time. Oh, I just know it was God's will because it happened so easy. Really? Where do you get that theology? A lot of times God wants the project to be delayed. He wants the road to be rough because God has a different agenda. And God's agenda, by the way, is that he always has a, big, a better plan and a bigger perspective. That's the other principle I see here. I know I'm hitting you with a lot of them, but... Write them down and think about them this week. God always has a better plan and a bigger perspective than we do. When we see a problem in our life and we even pray for it to be solved, we see this much. We see one problem and we think, wow, I think I know a solution. Boom. God, please do this. Boom. And, and, and God is looking at the whole big picture and he's thinking of all the different ways he could deal with it. And God, as the eternal God, also sees the ripple effect of, well, I could do this, 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 or this. And, and depending on what I do, here's the effect that's going to flow out of that for centuries and into eternity. And God cares about the big picture. He always has a bigger perspective than Dale does, or you do, because Dale is just this little myopic view. And so, therefore, knowing that, man, I need to say, God, even as I'm asking you to do this, please don't do it if you have a better plan. And I assume you do. So my prayer needs to very humbly always end with, but God, not my will, but thy will be done. That's not a cop-out for a lack of faith. 
That statement, if you really mean it, is an exercise of ultimate faith that says, but God, if this is not best for you and your kingdom, I want your will, not mine. It's a very healthy way to pray if we don't just make it a tagline to our prayers, but we really mean it. Because God has a better plan and a bigger perspective. And finally, God loves to surprise and bless his people. And I see it everywhere I go. God always has little surprises and blessings that we don't even ask for. Now, why do we know that God operates this way? Perhaps the final thing we should remember is that the greatest, grandest surprise of all was Jesus. Jesus. The grandest surprise to deal with the biggest problem in all of our lives followed all of these principles above. God had a better plan, a bigger perspective. We're just saying, God, please help me because I sin and I'm guilty. Can you help me somehow? And God says, I got a plan you would never even dream of. How about I take on a human body? How about I be born of a virgin? How about I spend 30 years on the earth? And how about I sacrifice myself on a cross as the sinless son of God for your sins? And how about I rise from the dead in three days to prove it all? And how about this requires simple faith, no works, because works will never get it done. You are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. How about that plan? How about a God that dies on a cross? Has anyone in human history ever dreamed that up? Of course not. And it just reminds us, you know, as we walk daily with God, um, our focus needs to be like theirs was, on simple, determined obedience. God, I will follow your word. And trust you that as I do, you're going to surprise me and you're going to get it done. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word and for the wisdom of it. Um, thank you for what it teaches us about our amazing God. Help us to broaden, deepen our vision of who you are. God who is always watching, always cares, always working behind the scenes when we can never even see it, always looking to advance your glory throughout the universe to get the word out, even if it's through an evil king like Darius, even if it's taken the opposition and turning them into the suppliers of our resources. So God, um, especially at this time in the life of our nation, when we wonder what in the world is up as we look to the future with elections coming and everything else, help us to rest in our God. In our personal lives when things get out of whack and we get surprised with bad news, help us to trust in our God. And even when things are going really well, may we stay humble and keep our trust in our God. 
Lord, even now as we uh, worship you with our giving, we do it uh, by means of saying to you, you are our great provider. We want to live in obedience and give back to you faithfully from what you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.